Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to the Doing Time podcast. My name is Eric Williams. I'm a professor at Sonoma State University and a a trainer for corrections officials across the country. I'm here with my co-host, Jacob Mermel. Jacob? Hey, everybody. My name is Jacob Mermel. I'm a former student of Professor Williams, and thank you for joining us again on Doing Time Pod. Great. Uh, happy to see that we actually grow in number of listeners every week. Uh, we are still fairly small, but uh, hopefully getting bigger. So we would love it if you would share the podcast with people, uh, whether it's on Twitter, Facebook, or uh, just to your friends. But uh, you can follow us on Doing Time Pod on Twitter. That's at Doing Time Pod with no G. Or you can join our Facebook group, the Doing Time doing time podcast facebook group um today we are going to talk about an incredibly controversial thing that's gone on this week uh we will call it the stanford rape case uh having to do with a uh stanford student who was recently uh sentenced for sexual assault uh we will then talk about judge louis brandeis um jeffrey rosen who is uh one of the foremost legal uh, legal journalist, I would say, uh, also a former law professor at George Washington University, recently wrote a book about Louis Brandeis, who I think is both a hero of, of Jacob and mine. Very much and so. J- and Jacob, what are you going to talk about this week on your international rant? Well, I've been going to all the Copa America games in Los Angeles this past week, and I've seen dozens of different South American countries. And what I realized is some of them, I don't get why they exist. And that is what I would like to talk about. Okay, so Latin America, why do so many of these countries exist? Okay, so um, the first ca- uh, case that we're going to discuss uh, is about as controversial of a case as or, or of a topic as we've discussed yet. It is um, it is a case that uh, took place several years ago where a swimmer at Stanford University. Uh, he raped a woman who was not a student there and, uh, and, and was, was convicted and sentenced this week in a California court. And he was sentenced to six months uh, in the county jail, which with time served is going to mean three months in the county jail, several years probation. And the world has erupted over this case. Uh, a couple of pieces of information that, that seem to have led to this eruption. The first was a letter, uh, what's called a victim impact statement that was written by the woman whose name is still anonymous, which is, of course, And it, and it should always stay anonymous. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, she wrote an incredibly eloquent vic- victim's impact statement about the effect that this had had on her life. And then Brock Turner, the, uh, the Stanford student, was then sentenced to six months in jail. He will not go to prison. He'll go to county jail, uh, despite the fact that the prosecution had asked for six years. Uh, there is a letter out there also written by Brock's father that has um, been shared all over Facebook that was uh, originally on BuzzFeed, as was the victim impact statement. And uh, this case has really, uh, you know, I, I've I've been uh, in Florida at my mother's house and she actually still watches the nightly news <laughs> and NBC has had a story on it every single night, uh, the last few nights. And, um, 
and I, you can't look at a Facebook feed without seeing it all over the place. So I wanted to ask you, Jacob, because you're a, a little closer to the age of, of yeah. both the victim and the perpetrator. Um, I, what were you thinking when you read up about this case? I mean, I'll be perfectly frank. I try to tune these out. Uh, I don't like reading these cases. They, okay. it actually, it's it's really upsetting and really terrible to read. And it's like Jesus Christ, people actually do this. Um, so I really tune these out. The re- the real reason I I read about this because you wanted to speak about it, and at, at work people were talking about it, and I just didn't even want to initiate. Um, I just don't like how high profile some of these rape cases get, and and they're saying people's names. I don't think anyone's name really should be mentioned, even the perpetrator. I think it all should stay behind closed doors. I don't really like that it's being said, and people are putting his picture out on the internet. You know, he did a horrible thing. He should deserve more time in jail, but, I mean, who are we to – you know, we're not law professors, not all of us, besides you. And who are we to make decisions on behalf of this case? And I think – you know, I just think it's really inappropriate. Yeah, you know, I, I here's my thing with it, and I and I to disagree with you, I mm-hmm. I don't have a problem, I you know, with this person with um with Brock Turner's name being out there, I don't have a problem with his face being out there, you know, I think this is you know one of the things that happens to you when you get into the criminal justice world, uh, that you know when you perpetrate a crime, you become a public figure in a way that maybe you had never planned to, I you know I think that that. My my big question about this case is is why this one? I, I you know I I recently um, I recently watched a documentary on Netflix that I highly recommend called The Hunting Ground, which is all about uh, sexual assault on college campuses. And it was an issue that that I was aware of. I work in the criminal justice world, and so you know I I I had talked to people who teach classes on the issue and there is, I hate to use this word, but it's actually true. There's an epidemic of sexual assaults that go on on our college campuses. And it it does have a lot to do with the amount of drinking that goes on there. uh, That, that it's a world where, where, you know, you have younger people, it's a highly sexualized world and universities, I think, are hiding in many ways from publicizing the real numbers of sexual assaults that go on on their campuses. And this this documentary, The Hunting Ground, really does show that to be true. I, I wonder why, though, this case seems to have caught the public's knowledge or caught the public's eye so much. I actually – I have a theory about this. I think it's because of the university – and the response from the university and the father's response and the student's response. He doesn't seem very remorseful for what he did. Right. And the father clearly doesn't seem very remorseful for what his son did. Right. And, you know, this is one of our top-tier universities, and you think they would have treated this um, more effectively? Yeah. And I think people got a sour taste in their mouth from this. Yeah. And so that that's sort of what I think about why it's such a high-profile thing. Because, you know, I, I hate saying this, and I, I've never used this term really. You know, it's sort of like this white privilege sort of deal. Mm-hmm. Oh, he goes to a great university. His father, you know, they're what, sort of well-to-do. He's a, a, a swimmer on the team. And I think he got off light. Yes. And people are very, very upset about that. And I think that's what's drawing people's attention to it. And people are making a big uh, fuss about it. Yeah, and I think this shows, uh, and we'll talk about the judge in a minute. I, I think this shows, uh, you know, I have I have several friends who've written pieces on white collar crime, and this shows the way that judges deal with 
you know, uh, people of privilege who get caught up in the criminal justice system, there's almost this feeling when you look at what the judge said, and it was very tone deaf the way the way the judge talked about it. There's almost this idea that, well, you come from such a good background that just having to be coming to court and being accused of a crime and having your life change in that way is so difficult for you that we're not going to sentence you to a long period in jail. And I think that that's really kind of what the judge was thinking. And that's where that idea of white privilege comes in. And I think that's true. I think that the judge thought, oh, well, this kid's, you know, he's so learned his lesson because his life has been so changed by this event that sending him to state prison really isn't going to do us any good. Yeah, I mean – and the thing is, like, okay, he went to Stanford, and you know, and his father doesn't, you know, his father seems some well to do. Yeah. But uh, is his life is his life really going to change after he serves the time? He probably will still be able to find a job, not like a lot of former uh, convicts. And I don't know. I, I don't think he really is going to get punished for what he did. No, I think that 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 that. That he, he probably did. He, you know, he got off very easy. Um, I have a friend who's a defense attorney um, who often listens to the podcast. And one of the things that he mentioned is he can't believe that the attorneys in the case were so don- tone deaf as to allow in these letters, especially the letter from from Dan Turner, Brock's father, this letter that said, you know, oh, well, this 20 minutes the, acting like essentially acting like the mistake that Brock had made was drinking too much, not committing a sexual assault. And, and that was, and, and that his life shouldn't be changed by a 20 minute activity. And it's comments like that, that people are really horrified by. And I can't believe that a defense attorney was stupid enough to let that letter in because it was just going to make his client look so bad. Yeah. He, he looks like a major schmuck for writing something like that and letting you get, letting it get out there it, there's you can't that's unexcusable yeah and i think that this you know i think you know i'm the first thing i will say is that i think that this is a case what scares me is that cases like this tend to hit the media people talk about it for about a week it becomes really really important and then a week later people forget about it and it's not a big deal and this idea of sexual assault on college campuses you know i i've worked on a college campus for well my entire adult life i've been on college campuses and it's it's a huge problem i'm often shocked by the students i hear from who have been sexually assaulted um you know and those are the ones that we hear about the number of cases that go um, that are sort of swept under the rug are enormous. And I hope it, in terms of college campuses, we start to realize that this is a prevalent problem and something needs to be done. And and I hope that that is the outcome. I'm afraid that what the outcome is going to be is way too much of a focus on this judge specifically. Yeah, and he seems sort of like the scapegoat for the case. Let's blame the judge for this, for the, you know, this this whole case but it's i don't think it's really the judge's fault i mean he made his decision as you said he's uh we were speaking before that he's been on the court for a he's been a judge for a while yep. he has a very good track record very clean yep. slate and uh it, it it looks like he was the right guy actually for this case but um you know i don't think he's the problem it, this clearly the guy that committed the crime is the problem right and right. his in his um Indulgent father is the yeah. problem. So, yes. uh, yeah, you can't blame the judge. 
No. And I think that that's, you know, there's a petition going around to, to recall the judge. You know, the judge has been on the bench for 13 years. He prosecuted sex crimes. He, um, you know, there's, there's, he was a committee member of a support network for battered women. He received a state award for civil rights leadership. This is not a guy you want off the bench. He made a, he made a mistake. Every human being makes a mistake. Um, you know, this was a very light sentence, but what concerns me is that the two things we're going to see happen out of this case is people are going to call for for Persky to be taken off the bench and they're going to start calling for some sort of mandatory minimum sentences, which, as we've seen from other parts of the world, including especially when it comes to dealing with drugs, mandatory minimums are a disaster and taking taking discretion out of the hands of judges in terms of sentencing is a disaster. And so let's focus on what the real problem is, which is sexual assault on campus and not focus on this judge. I think that's where we get into trouble. I could not agree more about that. <clears throat> so, I mean, it, it's going to be interesting to see, see how long this is in the public eye. You know, this is, I've been working in the criminal justice world for a long time and the media gets very excited about cases, uh, especially single cases. Politicians get excited about turning them into policy. And we we turn them into these very simplistic problems when actually they're incredibly complicated. And I hope that isn't something that we see happen here. I hope that we keep a focus on this is a major problem. It's a massive problem. Let's deal with this massive problem. Let's not focus on whether or not this judge needs to be recalled. Let's focus on sexual assault on college campuses. Completely agree. Now let's talk about something a little more uplifting. Okay. Yes. Uh, a little more uplifting is talking about Judge Louis Brandeis. Um, I wanted to talk about Louis Brandeis. I, I, I could talk about Louis Brandeis an awful lot. I wanted to talk about Louis Brandeis specifically this week because Jeffrey Rosen has come out with a new book about Louis Brandeis. And uh, – and I thought that it would be a good time. I heard him him speak on Fresh Air, not to you know, not to tell you to go listen to another podcast, but it's an <laughs> excellent interview, and I think many more people listen to her than listen to us. Uh, but Terry Gross interviewed Jeffrey Rosen, who is the president of the National Constitutional Center. Uh, he wrote uh, many books on the Supreme Court, and his recent book on Louis Brandeis really focuses on what it is that Brandeis as a justice has to tell us today and uh let's go through a little bit well, the clear answer is an awful lot yes yes yeah. he does so for those of you who don't know who louis brandeis is i i often say that louis brandeis is my favorite justice and not just because he was the first uh jewish justice on the supreme court that's 50 percent why i like him okay so 50 yeah. percent of why jacob likes him <laughs> some part of why i like him uh he has was on the court from 1916 to 1939. He was, I, I would argue, the court's first really, really vocal progressive. Uh, he he brought Oliver Wendell Holmes to his point of view, uh, but he was one of the founders of the ACLU. He was a attorney who represented labor for many years. He was a, a brilliant attorney. He grew up in Louisville, Kentucky. He was the child of 
immigrants from the Czech Republic, which was then called Bohemia. Uh, he graduated Harvard Law School, graduated at the age of 20 with the highest, highest grade point average in the law school's history, um, and lived in Boston until he ended up on the court for over 20 years. And interestingly enough, people who are wondering when Ruth Bader Ginsburg is going to retire, she has said that she will retire when she's on the court for longer than Louis Brandeis was, which is roughly 23 years. So that's, yeah, yeah it's pretty impressive. Uh, he's a very, very impressive pedi- a pedigree. And, you know, I think as you, as you know, and uh, some of the listeners might know now. I'm a huge fan of The Economist, and I love what they call Brandeis. They used to call him the Robin Hood of the law. Yes, I think it's a phenomenal title for him. Yeah, I really they, the the uh, one of the comments that that Rosen made called him called him the Jewish Thomas Jefferson, which I also kind of like a lot. Yeah, I think that's great as well. Yeah, so. Uh, Louis Brandeis, one of the two of the things that he's most famous for, at least um, in the world of economics, one is a book that he wrote called Other People's Money and How Bankers Use It. And it's it's a very interesting book. It's a fairly short book. And it essentially um, people have said that it it all but called the crash of 1929. And his argument was that the stock market and banking as a whole and the way that bankers used money was they took people's money, used it on these incredibly complicated derivatives. And that by doing so, people didn't didn't understand what was going on with their money. Sound familiar? Yes, it sounds incredibly familiar. They didn't realize how much their money was at risk. And therefore, banks were actually doing things that you would never want them to do if you understood what they do. And I think that book really speaks to our crash of 2008 and what's still going on on Wall Street to this day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and it's it's interesting because I, I don't, you know, I would he have voted for Bernie Sanders if he was alive today? I'm not a hundred percent certain, but a lot of things he did say resonates well with what Bernie was saying. And he, you know, he was against the big banks. He hated these monopolies. He was, I wouldn't say anti-corporate, but he was skeptical of the corporate culture of the United States at the time. And so, and the thing I also found very interesting about him is while he was skeptical of big business, he was also not a big fan of big government as well. He was right. more of a fan of a smaller government that was easy, you know, that it was easy, easy to oversee. Yeah. And he was, you know, he is the, um, it was one from one of his cases that he called the states laboratories for democracy, mm-hmm. uh, where he really felt that states were places that change could be made on a smaller scale to see if it actually worked before you tried to implement it on a national level. Right. And and also I thought it was very fascinating how the they were calling him the original the, – the living originalist. Yeah, that's an in- interesting one. I, I I tend to disagree with that one, but but what did you 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 like that one a lot? Being that you tend to lean that way yourself. Yes, exactly. You know, I have some very originalist philosophies on certain things when it comes right. to the courts, but then again, I realize, hey, you know, this is a different world we're living in, right. and precedents set from the English common law, you know, hundreds of years ago, and decisions made in the seventeen and eighteen hundreds in the United States. That doesn't really resonate with today's society at all. Right. So, yeah, I think a living originalist is a perfect place to be when you're on the bench. Well, I think that, that Brandeis was actually much more of he – was, he was a bit of a judicial skeptic. He was somebody – at the time, and we, we tend to – we tend to forget that politics changes as much as it does over time. But at the time, uh, 
the conservatives on the court were what were called judicial activists, right? They were very much in favor of overturning regulatory decisions made by the government, whether it be state or federal. And Brandeis was actually the justice saying, no, no, no. You have to let this happen. You have to allow the democratic system to do what it wants to do. And the job of the judiciary is to sort of mine the edges. If something is blatantly unconstitutional, it's our job to step in. But for the most part, he actually wanted to see a court that stayed out of the business of overturning cases coming from uh, challenges of Congress and of the states. And I think it's absolutely brilliant of him. I think he understood the the place of the court at the time, and I think that's fantastic. Yeah, I think he he was. You know, it's very interesting. He uh, Justice Frankfurter was um, almost like a son, a son to him. They were incredibly close. Frankfurter, who was. A, you know, a huge supporter of FDR and a huge supporter of the of the New Deal. When he got on the court, actually, uh, he disagreed with Brandeis. Yeah, and didn't mm. do with a lot. Didn't do a lot of the things that um, that that people had hoped that he would do as a progressive. Um, instead, he ended up, you know, really sort of taking a step back. And I think that he Brandeis would have would be. It'd be interesting to see what he was like on the court today, you know, because a lot of his views, although he was a progressive and he was pro-labor, he was also pro-states' rights. Um, And sometimes to his detriment, didn't really see the problem with, with, with race that was happening in the South and didn't realize that part of the outcome of being in favor of states' rights was also to be in favor of Jim Crow and some of the problems that we had in the 50s and 60s. Right, and he's also been criticized for the what the forced sterilization yes. decision on the yes. court along yeah. with Oliver Wendell Holmes. Yeah, so that was a, a case called Buck versus Bell. Uh, Carrie Buck was a young woman in Virginia, and Virginia had a – Law that basically said if you were found to be feeble-minded, you could be forced forced to be sterilized. And Carrie Buck, the only thing that we know of her being actually feeble-minded was that she happened to be 14 and pregnant. And her mother happened to have a child very young. And what Oliver Wendell Holmes said in the discussion about whether or not to sterilize Carrie Buck, his exact quote was, was three generations three generations of imbeciles should be enough, and it's a quote that makes you want to cringe. Um, the idea of sterilizing people makes you want to cringe, and the fact that Brandeis, although he may not have written the decision arguing in favor of forced sterilization, the fact that he didn't argue vehemently against it makes me a little bit queasy. Uh, yeah, no, it's, and it doesn't really fit with his sort of, uh, pedigree, I guess you can say in a sense, because look at, he was for labor and he became a, you know, he supported the women's suffragist movement later on and it doesn't really fit with everything else. It's very, I, I'm very curious what he was thinking at the time when that I came know. up. I know. It's, it's upsetting. Very, very interesting. That, yeah. Even in the, there was a very, very long biography done of, of Brandeis a few years ago that was excellent. And there's very little evidence that he did anything more than just vote for the case. And he, it's not something he wrote 
he wrote letters about that there was a, a lot of discussion about how he felt about the case and it's it's really too bad because you know here here is this this guy who argued so much in favor of social justice who was really the first justice to argue in favor of a of a wide notion of privacy rights mm-hmm. and here he is saying oh it's okay if you sterilize this this woman in Virginia. It really is sort of a sad chapter of his life. Well, on a better note, I mean, his legacy is immense. People yes. still study him today. Uh, people idolize him. I mean, he has a kibbutz named after him in Israel, a city named after him in Israel. I attended a Brandeis Institute summer camp Excellent. when I was younger. So, I mean, the guy's legacy will forever be, I think, on the right side of history. And I, he's revered by many people, not just us. Yeah, I think I think that's true. And I think that, you know, he was also one of the early supporters of Israel as a country, yes. um, at least as a as, as a notion, which is which is why there's a kibbutz named after him. Mm-hmm. He was he was he was a giant of the progressive movement of the time. Uh, there was a very important case, uh, Mueller versus Oregon, where he wrote a brief in favor of a maximum hours law, an hour, uh, a law that said you couldn't force people to work over a certain number of hours. And for women, and, nonetheless. And for women. And he wrote mm-hmm. a brief called the Brandeis Brief uh, that essentially used facts to argue, used data to argue how harsh it was on people and, and how much it destroyed their bodies. An analytics originalist. Exactly. Yes. Uh, how much it really would destroy their bodies. And, you know, for Brandeis, when you read a Brandeis decision, it's all about the facts. He is somebody who really was an early analytics person is a good way to put it. He was somebody who said, give me the facts and that's how I'm going to make my decision. And, and really made his decisions based on those things rather than a court, which at the time was very much making decisions based on their political preferences. And that's, and that's fantastic. And if that was just his legacy, that would be amazing as well. And it's, it's great. And that really is a fantastic way to view law, you know, looking at the real numbers and, and that's uh, that's fantastic. Yeah, and many people have argued that Thurgood Marshall, in writing his brief for Brown versus Board of Education, actually used the Brandeis brief as sort of a model that he would that he would copy in order to write the decision which ended school segregation in the South. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's I, I think that's probably a good way to remember Brandeis. I, I think that where. Um, the interview with with Rosen started to get off the rails a little bit uh, was when they started to have a discussion about, well, how would Brandeis feel about the 4-4 decisions on the court and how would Brandeis feel about the ninth Supreme Court justice not being um, not being a part of the court because of what Congress is doing. And I think we get into trouble when we take a historical figure like that pluck them from the 1930s and say, how would they feel about the decisions of what are going on in 2016? I agree. I, I thought it went a little, it was a little dodgy, the point where they were talking about the Warren era yeah. of the court and, and they brought up Alexander Hamilton randomly yeah. in this. I don't know how that related to the overall story about Brandeis, but I don't know. The, the ending tailed off. We'll, we'll leave it at that. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a funny thing about the Supreme court. I think that, that people, 
people forget the very long history of the court and and forget the changes that the court has gone through where you know in 1916 a progressive you know somebody who was who would have been considered a liberal today was somebody who was not messing with decisions made at the state level and at the federal level whereas during the 1960s a liberal like like William Brennan did exactly the opposite right mm-hmm. that right that the conservatives of the 1920s were very much the activists on the court, whereas during the Warren Court era, they were the ones saying that the court was going too far. And, you know, to to look at Scalia's legacy a little bit, Scalia was somebody who was very much okay with overturning federal laws if they came to the decision that he wanted to make. And so you know, in some ways he was very much an activist judge, if you you want to use that terminology. And so I think that people, I, I think it's important to understand that, that justices are a little bit more nuanced in their decision-making than just simply saying, oh, this is an activist judge, or this is a judicial restraint judge. People love to label and build these umbrella terms for people, and I not know. everyone fits into them, as we know. I, I know, and they and they really like making things very black and white. And exactly. So, you know, as far as the general public is concerned, the current court is split four to four, whereas, yes, they're split four to four on about – 10% of the cases that they're going to hear this year. In fact, there's more unanimity on the court now than there was 10 years ago under Justice Rehnquist. Hmm. We just don't pay attention a lot to those decisions that are 9 to 0. Because that, that doesn't make the nightly the nightly news. No, they're not exciting exactly. enough. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's not fun to say Justice Roberts and Justice Kagan agree, you know? It's it's much more fun to point out when they don't or to point out when Justice Thomas is the only one in dissent or, you know, when we have a 4-4 decision. Yep, but that's the world we live in today. It is. It is. Yeah. Okay. Moving right along. Uh, it is time now for uh, for Jacob's international rant. Uh, it comes from his, his recent attending of Copa America game. So, Jacob, take it away. This is correct. Well, so this week, as I mentioned earlier, I've been going to the Copa America games in Los Angeles. I'm a big soccer fan, so any opportunity I get to see the world's best, I do it. What the I on uh, what was that Tuesday? I go to a Paraguay Colombia game, and besides watching a fantastic game, great audience, all I can think about the whole time is why is Paraguay a country? <laughs> it's it's one of the two land seriously it's one of the two landlocked countries in South America. There's only I think what is it like six million people or something like that live there. I'm I'm fairly certain about that. Yeah, six million people. That's nothing. And you know and then I looked at its history. I was very fascinated while I was watching it, and I like looked at my phone at halftime and I'm like oh, okay, let me look up a little bit. Paraguay, I don't really know that much about it. So they they broke away from Spain in 1811, and then proceeded to fight with Argentina and Brazil a few years after. And they lost 70% of their population fighting that war after independence. (laughs) Okay. 70%. They lost half of their landmass after that war because they got crushed by Brazil and Argentina. Shocking, but yes, okay. Right. Okay, why is it still there? Why didn't they eventually say, okay, let's join Argentina. We speak Spanish. We have a similar history. We broke away from Spain one year apart from each other. Unless they have a very separate cultural identity that I'm not aware of, I, I don't know. They seem to enjoy the same things: soccer, eating meat. Uh, I mean, I don't know. It, it fascinates me. 
So, so your argument is what that they should join big Argentina? countries. Big countries are better, okay. in my experience. I think there's a few exceptions to the rule. You have Hong Kong, Macau, Israel, places like that. They're small. Singapore, they're successful. Okay, leave it there. But then you have a lot of small to medium-sized countries that are like, eh. And I think they'd be a lot better if they joined other countries nearby that have a similar identity and a similar history. I think they would benefit from that. Yeah, I, you know, I got to tell you, I have never given – I have given zero thought in my life to the existence of hey, Paraguay. Yes, I and I just had this Tuesday. I had this revelation. Okay. And this is the ramblings of a crazy man. This, I, these you know, are. Yes. And, and I'm sure all of our listeners in Paraguay are now going crazy because – Yes, know. okay. I'm, I'm persona non grata there. That's okay. <laughs> exactly. They're leaving the podcast in droves because you've yes, told them, them that they should no longer we have a very, country. We have a very Spanish-friendly uh, podcast. We do. Yes. Our, yes mm. Absolutely. I, you know, I, I really, I, I can't even think of what my opinion would be if I were to have one. Uh, exactly. This, that's why this is so ridiculous that I even thought about this during a game. It's excellent. I am glad that you went to the game. How was it? It was fantastic. I mean, they lost to, uh, they lost to Colombia, but it was a great game. One of the players on Paraguay, I think he had the goal of the tournament thus far. He drilled it for maybe 30 yards out. It was unbelievable. But the Columbia game was great. Last night's Mexico game was fantastic. Uh, the the craziest fans you have ever seen in your entire life. That's excellent. That's yeah, really it, was, it was it was really fantastic. Yeah, you know I'm going to be I, I, I am going I'm leaving for Europe on Sunday. I will be in London and then I will be in Paris and then we'll be in a few other countries. I'm going. And what with. a fantastic time to be in Paris! We have the Euros. As it turns out, the the Euro Cup will be going on while I am in Paris. Uh, our tour director, which is uh, so it's two faculty members, 23 students and a uh, and a tour director who is sort of our guide for the entire time. She has tried to impose a 1030. Um, uh, a, a, she would like our students back at 1030 at the hotel. Not happening. Uh, and, and I have a hard time telling 22 and 23 year olds that they have a curfew. Not uh, happening. I, you know, maybe it's because I'm not a parent. Maybe it's because I don't want to act like a parent to my students, <laughs> but I am not telling them that they have a curfew. It's just not going to go on for me. But you are correct that the Euro Cup is going to be going on. I looked to try to get tickets uh, to a match while we were there. They were at least 500 euros for uh, for a ticket. Worth is, every penny. Yeah. Well, it's a little out of my budget. I am a, a starving college professor. This and is all. true. Um, so unfortunately, I'm not going to go to a game, but I will get to see the aftermath. And we will hope that our my 23 undergraduates don't get in any trouble hanging around in Paris with a bunch of crazy Polish and German soccer fans. Oh God, I'd be more afraid of the English and Welsh fans. Well, fortunately, neither, neither England nor Wales are playing while we're there. Oh, excellent. So it is Poland, Germany. Um, and, uh, I can't remember who else, but those are the two countries. I, those nice. are that Poland, was Germany, and France. Very, yeah. very nice collection yeah. of countries. Yes. So, well, it's, you know, at least the, the English hooligans will not be there. So true. Uh, I think we'll be safe. Anyway, I think that's pretty much all I have to say on this week's podcast. Jacob, do you have anything new? No, um, I'm good. I think that was a, I think that was a good one. Okay. Um, next week I, I will be in Europe, uh, as I mentioned for the next month. So when, and if we're going to manage to, uh, to get the podcast out there over the next 
four weeks. We will find out, but I am hopeful that we'll have decent Wi-Fi in the hotels. Um, I will be sure to share any stories that I have from my Please students. Do. Yeah, well, you know, Amsterdam on its own could be um, could be interesting. Uh, last year, we were on a trolley on our uh, uh, the other professor and I went to dinner and we were on the trolley on the way back to the hotel and we ran into a few students and they had obviously been enjoying the coffee houses and they looked very very upset to be running into their professors in public nice. and uh i enjoyed it quite fully so <laughs> we will well, see go. how many more stories we have coming from there so until next week or uh hopefully next week if we can manage to get good enough wi-fi jacob all right. Well, thank you very much, everybody. And make sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Doing Time Pod. At Doing Time Pod. We look forward to having you follow us there. Thanks a lot.